Welcome to episode 227 of the Women of the Military podcast. My guest this week is Laura Hamlet. Laura knew she was on a path that didn't end well, so she decided to join the Navy as a way to help her overcome her addiction. She had graduated from NYU with a degree in film and was getting by in New York, but struggling with drug addiction, alcoholism, and bulimia. She was looking for structure, and because her dad had served in the military, it gave her the idea that she should join too. Her Navy service consisted of one tour, and today she works in film and is passionate about sharing stories, including the stories of veterans. Before we get started with this week's episode, I want to tell you about a program that is being offered by the VA Office of Women's Health. Did you know that only 44% of women veterans are enrolled in Veteran Affairs Healthcare? This is 8% lower than male veterans. The VA Office of Women's Health is working to change that. They created the VA Women's Health Reengagement Training, HEART, with the goal of increasing the number of women veterans who use VA healthcare by educating them on what women veteran-specific services are available to them and how to enroll. I recently took this course and learned about the healthcare services provided by the VA along with specific services offered for women. I also interviewed Ariana Wagner, a VA women's heart trainer, about the program and how she got involved in working to get women veterans enrolled in VA healthcare. Want to learn more or sign up to attend a virtual or in-person event? Head over to their website, www.womensheart.info slash register. This information will also be available in the show notes. I also wanted to share that Women of the Military podcast is now on Wreaths Across America Radio on Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. So go check us out on iHeartRadio, Audacity, or TuneIn. And now let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Laura. I'm so excited to have you here. Hey, I'm really happy to be here too. Honored to be on this podcast. Thank you. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? It is not just a simple black and white answer there. I would say, you know, my both of my grandfathers and my father served in the military. So I had, like I always had a curiosity about it. But ultimately, um, I got into film school and went through college. And by the time I was on the other side of college, I was living on my own in New York City. And I was like a bulimic, drug addict, alcoholic. (laughs) And I could always manage to pay my rent and do the things I needed to do. But I could feel my life sort of slipping. And I kind of just thought back to that, you know, my father was in the military, the military is maybe something that could straighten me out, they could fix me. Or that would help me fix myself, you know? And so I went to a recruiting station and yeah, the rest is is history. I think it was mostly out of self-preservation. Wow, that's an interesting story. And it's interesting that you're you were like in a tough spot and you were like, Oh, my dad was in the military. That probably could solve my problem. <laughs> he seemed It's funny when you're a kid, like, especially as a kid growing up in the suburbs in America, you think like, oh, I have it so hard. Life's so tough. (laughs) It's like I had my life made. You know, I had it made. I had great parents. They were divorced, but they were very civil to each other. Such honest, like good people. And they were always really stable. And so when I was going through that time of like chaos and uncertainty and 
really fear for your life at a certain point when you're doing things so stupid. <laughs> I just wanted to go back to that stability. And I thought, you know, my father was in the military and it helped our family in some way, you know, so, um, so that's where I went. So when you went to the recruiting station, what was that experience like? Were they like, join the military today? Or did they kind of push you away? Or how did that go? You know, it, it was kind of a long drawn out thing, although it happened, you know, as quickly as things happen in childhood. But um, I graduated from NYU with a bachelor's in, in filmmaking. And when I got out, I was a kid that was just really lost, you know, just super lost. I'd had sexual trauma in my past and I didn't realize I was just avoiding that through all these dumb coping mechanisms. And so when I went to the recruiting center <laughs> the first time, um, I tried to join the Air Force and I was really crazy. So I have um, the F word tattooed on my body and the Air Force was like, we're not having it. We don't want anything to do with you. So <laughs> my childhood being from Colorado and going to Air Force football games with my dad and stuff, <laughs> I've been watching flyovers. It was like, that's not going to happen. But they sent me to the Navy. They, I was in Brooklyn and went to the recruiting station and the Navy recruiter was really a, a nice gentleman. And he let me know like, hey, if you love aviation, if you're interested in aircraft, the Navy is the way to go anyway, you know? <laughs> so yeah, uh, that experience was really good. I got a good um, impression. What I will say about my recruiting experience, I, um, I eventually got sent to a different recruiting center because I went back to Colorado while I was waiting to get in. I was living with my grandfather who had dementia at the time. You know, I wound up getting recruited out of Colorado and the recruiters there, they got me to go enlisted you know, I was like sort of in a desperate situation. I wanted to get out of my life and they were telling me that I could pay off my student loans. So everything was going fine. I was ready. I was going to, you know, get a story for a film one day and I um, was going to pay off my debt in the process. And about two days before my enlistment date, I get a call from the recruiter, not my actual recruiter, but someone else who worked in that station. And he said to me, like, you know, the other recruiter didn't actually fill out your paperwork to get your college loans taken away. So are you still willing to join? We're not paying your loans back. And I was like, oh, like my whole life, I moved back to college. I like shifted everything. And I was still, you know, having addiction issues. And I was just like, just, I just want to, I just want to go. I just want to get out of my life. So, you know, one of those kiddo decisions you make, I could have done this a fully different way. I could have stepped back and thought about it and gone in as an officer and had a completely different experience. But I didn't. This is, you know, so my lesson I learned there from the very beginning was just to, to follow up, be annoying. Don't trust that other people care about you, have your best interests in mind, or, you know, have the time. It's not even that I'm sure he was going through other stuff, but maybe he wasn't good at his job. I mean, like, not everyone's good at their jobs. <laughs> so just to always, you know, just to be persistent because it's important to you. You know, another, you know, <laughs> lesson is just not to become an addict. You know, that's <laughs> maybe helpful. Um, but, you know, ultimately, uh, yeah, just stick up for yourself. And so, yeah, I, I think about it to this day. Like, what if I had just said, what can I just, what? I didn't even say, can I wait and just try and reenlist again <laughs> and have you do the paperwork? I just said, sign me up. And I went. So that's how that turned out. Yeah, that's a crazy story. And self-advocating is so important. Uh, before we were talking, we were talking about how I need to work on self-advocating to get my book out there. And I was like, oh yeah, that's really important. You need to self-advocate. And I like 
that you said, like, I didn't even ask the question. Like, I didn't even say, like, is there another option? It was just like, okay, sure, I need to join. I'm going to join. This seems like the only option. And instead of even asking, like, can we wait a couple weeks? Can we figure something out? You just dove in there. So, yeah, I think that's really important to talk about. This is why people need your book. Because your book is incredible. Like I've given this book specifically to one young woman and I hope that she, she's read it. So she, she will infinitely, she'll definitely go out there better prepared than I was. Thank you. I love, I love hearing that women veterans are passing it on to young women considering service. Cause that's like, I think that's like the best compliment when another woman veteran's like, yes, here, <laughs> pass this on. And so that, that makes me so happy. So we'll go back to your career and you found out two days before that you weren't going to get your loans paid off, but you did it anyway. So you headed off. Did you go to Chicago for basic training? I did. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So I was always a tomboy and a sportsy, you know, athletic person. And so I, you know, I was a uh, distance runner and stuff when I was in high school. So I, I kind of like the Navy boot. <laughs> like I said, I needed it. I was 24, I believe, when I joined. So I had a different perspective. I've been living in New York City on my own. Um, staying up all night long was nothing new to me. And so I kind of became mother hen, you know, and I, I just listened and watched and and I enjoyed boot camp. I was supposed to run the New York City Marathon the day I got <laughs> the gas chamber. <laughs> um, so a, a different way to spend the day. Um but yeah, I uh, I knew I was doing, it just felt right. It felt like I was going in the direction of discipline, you know, which I needed. Yeah, so you felt like it was giving you like the main thing, like the structure and the stability that you needed could get you out of like the patterns and situations that you were in. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. So after you graduated from basic training, where did you go and what was your job? So I got as close to aviation as I or, you know, uh, to, um, to aircraft as I could being enlisted, which was working aviation maintenance. I was an electrician's mate. So I worked on F-18 generators and hung out with a bunch of geeks. We were, it was like an interesting community of people. I also was um, I level as opposed to O level. So I wasn't out on the flight deck. I was that person that would put on like a big winter coat and go to the tunnel on an aircraft carrier and be... <laughs> working in like a refrigerated room. We had a test bench that you would basically, you would turn on and you would try to simulate what an aircraft does in flight and you would fix any electrical issues that were going on with the generators and then bring them back out. So yeah, definitely a different world, but I love, I actually had a lot of fun. I loved doing that. Um, and I love the people I worked with. So I got to um, go on three different aircraft carriers and they were all different experiences each time. Do you want to talk about all three or do you want to pick your favorite or what do you want to do? I think it would ultimately boil down like my, I, I only officially deployed once, right? So um, I went on a workup with the Reagan. I went on a um, workup with the Carl Vinson, but my real deployment was with the USS Enterprise on its final voyage. And it was, you know, it's such a weird thing to say that I enjoyed deployment. <laughs> It doesn't make sense, you know, to a lot of people. But even the captain, when we were done with that deployment, said that there was something about that group of folks on that carrier that was different. There was an optimism. There was like hard, it was just really good leadership. 
And yeah, and also you're so removed when you're on an aircraft carrier. You're you're on a ship, you know, I would go watch, basically get my own private flight shows every night after I was done with my 12-hour shift, I would go out and I would watch the jets fly, you know, and watch the ocean. And it sounds very nice and idyllic. I mean, it was a gross job. <laughs> um, and it was 12 hours a day, you know, seven days a week. It was hard work. But yeah, the, the people on there, I was a little airman. They brought me in and they were kind to me. And, and it was this whole community of people, you know, gross, fascinating, but I, I got a sense of humor when I was out there. And I'm grateful for that experience. And what year was it? And where did you guys deploy to? I would have to, I, you know, I don't know the exact year. I think it was either 2012 or 2013. It was like the day after I got to my first duty station, I was what's called C-Updet. So I have a particular, it's an NEC in the Navy, right? MOS. They would caught, like fly me out to the ship. They call it being cotted out. And so they flew me out to the the enterprise, but it was like funny. I got into my duty station. They're like, so you know, there's a bunch of different people, and people could go at different times. But I went straight up to the first class petty officer in my the guy that was running my shop, and I was like, can you send me out on a ship? I just want to go out on a ship. And he was like, well, you could go in two days, and then boom, I was gone out. And so that experience happened really, really quickly. We went to the Persian Gulf. Um, I believe again, it must have been 2012. It was when the USS Enterprise. It was their final voyage. And we basically just went to Dubai and did that like show of force. So you basically go Dubai, Bahrain, Dubai, Bahrain, like a sitting duck in the Persian Gulf <laughs> and kind of, you know, running that. And because it was the, the final voyage, the captain wanted the, the aircraft carrier to get up to the same speed, like the highest speed it had ever gone, gotten up to. But it's an old boat. <laughs> and luckily I got, what's it called? It's like a, you can qualify to get this like aviation warfare qual is what it's called so i got my aviation warfare qual and then like a few weeks later the captain decides on our last three days we're gonna like take the uss enterprise to warp speed and we're going to get back home well the ship flooded like the whole ship flooded because it was so it's so old it's not like it wasn't prepared for that so we're all up there with like mops and brooms and like cloth like everything anything you could think of i was like going into the head with you would be knee deep in water and you would have to take buckets and fill up the mop like bucket. And then you would drag that over to the toilets and you would <laughs> dump the water into the toilets. And that's how we ultimately got rid of all the water on the ship. <laughs> and of note, uh, at the end of that enlistment, we did what was called the Tiger Cruise. When I joined the military, my father was in the army. He was um, infantry, uh, airborne infantry. He was the last all-male boot camp division in the army. So after he saw the first women come in to the military. So when I enlisted after graduating from college, <laughs> he was basically like, this is the dumbest decision you've ever, you could ever make this. You were going to regret this because he'd seen women. He didn't say it at the time, but he'd seen women sort of be abused in certain ways. And he was like, I can't believe you're doing this. This is an awful decision. And he was so against it. After I got back, you know, on the enterprise, first of all, he's a Star Trek geek. So you know, when I invited him onto the Tiger Cruise where they bring families, he was really excited. But more than that, I think he saw a change in me. Like he saw that I was invested in something, that I was working hard, that I was part of a community of people. And he went to the boat, he, you know, ate the meals with us. He did workouts with us. And he looked at jets with me. I got to show him the F-18 I sat inside. You know, it was like this really wonderful um, father-daughter 
experience where suddenly what he thought was going to be the worst thing in the world for me turned out to be a really great thing for me. And so, yeah, I love it. He's, he's grateful to the military. Now he doesn't look at it like every woman that goes in the military is going to be abused, you know, or anything, which is, is nice. And that's not the case for everyone. Right. But in my case, I felt like it was, it was a a good thing. So. Yeah. That's a really touching story. And it's April and we're, it's the month of the military child. So like, it's really cool to hear that story and to have it just, you know, I was getting chills as you were talking about the experience with you and your dad, just because it's such a special moment, especially when he was like, what the heck are you doing? (laughs) Why are you doing this? And then it came full circle and he was like, oh, this is actually good for you. And yeah. And you had, so that's really cool. Yeah. Thank you. I felt it feels good. He and I still have that. It's a thing we share and we're the only in my immediate family, um, people that have served. So it's just this bond we have, you know, it's kind of a nice thing. Yeah. My great uncle served in Vietnam. And when I was deployed, he would send me like care packages. And on Veterans Day, he always sends me like a message. And like, we have this like special connection because we are the only like two people in our immediate family that served in the military and so we've had a lot of like interesting conversations about you know my experience his experience and he originally when I first asked him about his time in Vietnam wouldn't tell me anything and then he opened up to me and shared about his experience and shared some of his memories and talked about how it helped to like talk about it in a different sort of way so I think that's really cool when like the different generations can like you know provide that to each other absolutely and especially for for in that in your case i mean what an amazing thing and for a vietnam veteran to kind of have that connection and get that release that maybe they didn't get i mean they before that's a really gigantic thing so i'm happy that you have that with your uncle yeah it's really cool and so so you started off your career in the navy kind of like full throttle it's like you get to your assignment and you're like let's go and then I also wanted to hear more about what it was like to be on the last cruise because I've interviewed a few people who talked about like getting to be on like the first one and like they had like different ceremonies and different things that they got to experience that were different so I was wondering if they did anything special to like take a ship off the water aside from flooding it at warp speed I don't know <laughs> Um, they, you know, I think they did have a big ceremony in Virginia. Um, it was an East pack ship, but what happened was once we pulled back in, they dry docked it. And I think they did a decommissioning ceremony there with the people that were tied to that boat. So a lot of people have a designation where they, that's their, their space. I was, like I said, I was, uh, had a job description where I would sort of go out whether Westpac or East pack to ships that needed my specific service. So I wasn't tied to it. I can't remember exactly what it's called when you're, oh, it's like, it, that's basically what it is. You get stationed. And like some people, their sh- station is the ship and mine just was not. So so I didn't go to that ceremony, but I, I do think they had one. Yeah, that's kind of the Air Force has a lot of like people who have specific expertise. And like when we deploy, like when I deployed, I deployed as a, they called it an individual augmentee. So they were like, we need your expertise and we're taking you here. And so I didn't know that the Navy had that. I Everyone that I've interviewed who's been on a ship, I'm pretty sure that they were assigned to the ship and like 
you know, and so they would like do the workups and then they would get ready, get the ship ready for the deployment, go on the deployment and then, you know, follow that cycle through the whole process. Yeah. As I, like I said, I went on workups and I went on a rim of the Pacific exercise with the Ronald Reagan, which is just like, you know, take the boat to Hawaii float around it was like the easier I mean it was such a fun experience and I'd had a really kind of rougher experience on a different workup and so I it was like you know I had the enterprise was my first like when I first came into the military and then I had sort of like a rougher workup on the Carl Vinson and then it was on the Carl Vinson that I realized those stories that women talk about you know in the military I just, I understood the reality of harassment or poor leadership. Um, and one benefit I had was I worked so hard that I had the folks at my command back in, I was actually stationed in Woodby Island, Washington. And that's where I was like going out of. I worked so hard that I had like a warrant officer on my side. I had the, the chiefs. I was like really dedicated to doing this well. So when I came back from that, work up, I think it was about six weeks on the Carl Vinson, and they asked me out there, their their maintenance staff wrote a letter and asked me to come back because they felt like I was doing good work. But I told my commandos, I don't want to go back. It's like, a <laughs> there's something on that boat that's not right. I'm watching other women get harassed. I'm trying to stick up for myself there. And I just, I don't, if it's possible for me to not be included on the next one, send a guy out, I would appreciate that. And they did. They did that. And I've heard, you know, the men that went out there seem to not have issues with it. One benefit I had going in as a 24-year-old who'd been on my own in New York City, I've been a really insecure young girl, a geeky, weird young girl. And all the bad things that could have happened to me potentially in the Navy already happened, <laughs> like before I got in. So I had a thicker skin. When I first got in, I had a, like a real quick experience with a younger guy who was just like straight up sexually harassing me. <laughs> and I just was like, he was like bold faced and he was married. I, I just couldn't believe it was happening. Right. But I just told him, I said, you know, and I was strong enough at this point to say it, you know, I and mean, I'm thankful for that, but it makes me worry for women who come in that were, you know, younger or insecure or whatever. I just told him, if you don't have, if we're not talking about work, I do not want to talk to you. Don't talk to me about anything. And from that day forward, I just thought, because everyone liked him. He was like a very well-liked, nice person. And it, like, I don't think people would have believed me. I was new, you know, I didn't, yeah, whatever. So I just decided that I was going to get so good at my job that they would need me. And so I just like focused all of my energy on being good at my job. Does that mean this would work for every woman in every case? Absolutely not. But that was my weapon. I was like, I'm going to do this job well, and I'm going to make them feel like I'm invaluable. So they don't want to mess with me because it would be a disadvantage to them. And that, that seemed to work pretty well. Again, I don't know how that would work for others, but I do think getting really good at your job is a smart thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard because there are the, like, you know, the pressures that I think women feel, especially like you said that on that ship you weren't, you know, directly dealing with it. You were kind of like indirectly dealing with it. And, and it was still affecting you, even though you were really good at your job and like so good, they were like, please come back. And you were like, no, I don't want to come back. And they were probably like, why did she want to come back? You know, she works so well. And it's one of the hard parts about like joining the military as a woman, facing the stereotypes, facing some of the challenges that are just there because of 
you know, the culture. I like how you said, like, the first ship you had, like, good leadership. And you could tell on that second ship that, like, the, there's something in the leadership. And I think that's where, like, the problem that comes all the way down to, like, you know, the the leaders, they set the tone. And the things that they do that they think don't matter have an impact on the rest of the military and the culture and the, you know, the whole unit. And so, yeah, I think... I think that's why the military is having such a hard problem, like, pivoting and, like, trying to fix the problem. Because they're trying to fix it, like, down at the bottom with, like, what's actually happening. And it has to start at the top. You have to change the culture. You have to change, you know, sharing that, like, my ROTC unit, our history was all about the men in the military. And they never talked about what women did. You have to share women's history in the military and the men's history, like, together and not just focus on like the parts you know that they want to highlight and those things really matter they seem like they're not a big deal but like I didn't learn about the wasp until I started doing a podcast that's not good (laughs) I was in the air force I should know about that history you know like I didn't learn about the waves I didn't learn about like all this history that I've learned from doing a podcast not from serving in the military which I think is like a huge problem and it shows like there's so many like cultural things that have to change I totally agree I you know it's like a it's a weird, like that particular, again, so I only get like a little, I only had the advantage I had because I went out for six weeks and came out. But what was fascinating about that ship was it was actually, the captain was, I believe the captain was a female and there was a lot of female leadership. And that's not to say that the females were necessarily, I think it was like the response to the female leadership and the pushback and there's surely overcompensation in some spaces and this resentment. And just this general feeling of we're not used to this. It's uncomfortable. And we need to, and it, like, you know, my hope is that over time that balances out and people become used to, yeah, like, just like you said, like you're hearing stories of women who have done heroic things as well. There's a value. There's a reason why women are here. We bring something to this mission. And until that really becomes normal, until it's like, you know, I've spoken with women where, they were like, we're, everything's so recent. It's so new. Like women allowed in combat roles now. And at first you think of like, oh, let's just protect them. And let's think of the ways this could be bad. And it's like, what about the ways this could be good? And there will be things, there will be downsides to it. And there will be problems that arise, but give us a chance. Like we, I want to, we want to show you that, you know, there's definitely value here. And if you don't give us a chance, you'll never know that. Uh, yeah, it's. I think it's a long. It's hard because you have to be patient. <laughs> you just have to be patient there. I do think you're right that it would be wonderful to hear more stories and to not have to. It's also strange because, you know, even as women veterans, unless you like dig in and say I want to explore this as a woman veteran, you don't hear about it. So certainly not just like in larger culture you're hearing about it in civilian life. You're not hearing about it. And then there's also women veterans that are like, hey, I don't want to remember that experience. Or, you know, like, I don't want to be defined by that experience. And so if you're not, like, directly in it, looking at it and looking for it, you don't hear any of this, you know, which is a shame. Yeah, it's so true. And even the way the military talked about women in combat, 
because I was deployed on a combat. I was attached to an infantry unit before I could serve in an infantry unit. And the way that they, you know, their PR for it was like, we're trying something new. And I was like, why aren't you up front and saying like, women have been in combat for years. Now we're just giving them. And like, instead it was like, this is something new. And like the whole PR campaign, like was a disservice to the women who stepped up, served in combat and opened the door It was like the military was like, well, we weren't really supposed to do that. So let's just pretend like that didn't happen instead of highlighting women who had done, you know, had changed the military's mind. It's not like the military woke up and was like, hey, this is a great idea. It was that women were already doing it. And then they were like, I guess we should actually, you know, change the law since women are doing this anyways. But it was like they were like, we can't talk about that because it was against the rules. And so the whole like PR campaign was messed up. It's this very catch-22 thing. They're all, you know, they're trying to cover what they, I mean, that's the job of PR, right? Smooth things out, make things look intentional, whether they were or not. It is unfortunate. What I love, though, is that people are diving into those stories. And again, I'm, I have a, such a um, biased perspective because I look for it and I listen for it. But I have seen things come out recently that are are telling that story of, you know, women that because again, we, we have a value, you know, especially with other cultures that have, you know, discomforts, uh, you know, the male-female interchange is, is difficult. And so we have this incredible value globally. So that must be a strange feeling for you to be, you know, like you're the, the face of the glorious <laughs> beginning of this era when you feel like you're not, while what you were doing was still valuable you know, like so valuable. Well, and I'm like just like one tiny little sand, you know, drop of like all the women. And yeah, and it just irks. Well, someone, the reason it probably irks me the most is because after uh, Secretary Panetta made his announcement, someone came up to me and asked me if I was going to get out of the military because they made the rule change. And I was like, I already got shot at and saw combat. So like, it's and they were on the base you know they were a civilian at the base and they they had no idea what women had done or were doing and thought that that would you know change my mind on if I should continue to serve and I was like well I already deployed and saw combat so so that's like shows why that PR campaign was so hurtful for women in the military and just for the overall not understanding it's a weird space. Like I, again, I, I got a film degree and I hoped one day to make, you know, war films or to make films. And there's like this big conundrum where the Hollywood look of what, you know, war is or what service means. It's obviously fabricated and documentaries get closer, you know, to the reality there. But there's also this weird alternative side where some of those films are the reason why Vietnam veterans now have respect, right? And service members are looked at in a different way and appreciated. It's like why people go out of their way to help. Like the amount of resources I have as a veteran, I, I'm just, I had no idea I would fall into that wealth of benefits when I got in as a young, crazy kid. I didn't realize. And my husband has mental health issues He's a civilian. He never served. He doesn't have resources like I have. They just, they're not there. And one of my hopes is that 
you know, through continuing to tell stories, visual stories and making films, I can sort of, A, you know, try and portray with as much accuracy as possible the military story, at least make it so that that level of respect kind of remains there when possible, even in being honest, you know, like military is not perfect, but no one's perfect. Like what business is perfect? What, like, tell me a, tell me a company that's um, perfect. I find a lot of similarities between corporations in the military, between gangs in the military there, you know, it's just a, um, there's a lot to dive into there, but my hope is, you know, to, to share these stories and also to sort of bridge that civilian veteran gap, not because I think like veterans are less like deserve less than we have. I appreciate what we have. I love the, I am so grateful for those resources. I just like to share the wealth as people become more open to taking care of mental health. Um, it's like, Hey, the VA has this long history of, uh, diving into PTSD. We have first responders. We have people with, um, that were abused as children that are just not getting the help they need and they're at a disadvantage because they don't have those resources. So, so sharing those resources via, you know, doing, doing film and writing stories is great. Also sharing with the veteran community, the idea that like, I've also been in the filmmaking community <laughs> and it costs them so much money to make films. <laughs> and there's so many moving parts that even when the intention is good, sometimes you're unable to do the thing or the shot doesn't happen or we miss an element. It's like, you know, you could have the best military advisors. You could have people that are actually trained military as actors, you could, but it's just film is its own beast, you know, and it, people try really hard to get there. In this documentary project I've been working on in Colorado, um, where I'm interviewing vets, one question I asked just out of curiosity was like, what's your favorite book or film in the military? And I've found that most combat veterans don't want to watch war movies and they stay as far away from them as possible. Why would you want to watch that? And especially if it's not accurate, you know, in some way, or if it is, that's even worse. You know, <laughs> like, um, you know and that, that was another question I was like, do you want to see the real thing? Because I don't, I don't want to see the real thing. I know, I, I know the real thing. I know what the aftermath of that is. I know people come home and then take their own lives because of how that is. Like, I don't want to see that. So it's a big, big conundrum. And my hope is just to kind of occupy that space where I feel like I thrive as a creative person and just tell stories that are meaningful, that really speak, you know, true or that are true to the folks I've met and the stories I've heard and experienced. And just try to be a little like source of good in a big space where sometimes things are wildly inaccurate. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't like seeing war films because that's just too close to home. And like, I don't know what my emotions are going to be. So that is something I stay away from. So I, I resonate with that. But I think it's important to like do those stories and like talk about those stories. And Netflix recently announced they're doing a, movie on the 6888 all black unit that deployed to France and sorted the mill and Tyler Perry is uh writing and producing the show and they just sent out some pictures of like the costumes and I think it's so great because like I know their story and like I learned about it when you know they got the presidential which also I didn't find out about until they got the presidential medal of freedom but like now it's going to be on Netflix and like highlighting women of World War II. And I think 
like there's probably going to be some inaccuracies to make it you know like a more exciting story and um, add a little bit of drama to it but people will know their story they'll know about what women did during world war ii and i was like so when are we gonna make a movie about the loss <laughs> like when are we gonna talk about the waves like there's so many like but i think it's really cool because things like that are starting to bleed into mainstream media and i think that it's gonna have a huge impact on the military and change the way people look at women in the military just by knowing that stories we got a little distracted yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think it was a great conversation but I wanted to go back to when you left the military like why did you leave you know I never um, I I didn't I never thought the military would be a career thing for me I thought I was gonna get in I didn't even you know I was like so desperate to get out of my life I didn't even know I would get like the GI bill. I didn't even, I didn't know about, this is how uh, intelligent I was when I was <laughs> a young NYU grad. Um, so, uh, you know, when I got out, I, I still wasn't totally over my addiction issues, but I was closer. I had been trying to get away from those. And what, you know, I think what really had to happen was I had to sort of hit that like lowest point um, and, and part of how I got there was like, you know, I went into the military as an adult and I came out and I was like, I was trying to remember cause I totally assimilated. I did well in the military, you know? And I was like, one thing I did, I got out one month early because the military is cool enough to say, Hey, you signed up to use your GI bill after the service. You can get out a month early, still honorably. So I actually served like three years and 11 months or something weird like that which is a, a good thing to know for folks, but um, I got out, I still had sort of addiction issues and whatnot. And I was trying to figure out like, is the person I was before the military and the person I was in the military, I don't think either of those are me anymore. And I met my husband when I got out, he was also, uh, he had addiction issues and the two of us just sort of said, like, if we continue in this way, we're going to die. Let's do something better. And that's when we started helping other veterans. Um, he, like I said, he had PTSD. So, I mean, he, his, PT, his um, level of, I can't, I hate to like do comparative PTSDs because we could go all day, like, you know, <laughs> but he's the type waking up in the middle of the night, punching things, screaming, cursing. He's had severe trauma. I am not that level of PTSD. You know what I mean? I've had issues, but anyway, we, sh we shared similarities and he was a tattoo artist at the time. And it was, um, he had a client who was an army veteran and he was in a really low space and we were convinced that we could somehow save him, help him. We took him into the home. We did all these things and he ultimately killed himself. You know what I mean? It was what it was. I think seeing that and seeing, you know, how low it could go and where things were, how we were, we never drank together or did any drugs together or anything like that. So we were just these like beacons, like, hey, we could do this. We pulled together and got um, completely sober. I stopped binging and purging. It was huge. Um, it's been actually in uh, March, it'll be six years. Without the military, like having me take a good hard look at that and the discipline I did learn in the military, I wouldn't have come to that space where I could overcome addiction, I don't think. And having a partner to do it with me, there's like highs and lows there. <laughs> they tell you not to do that, I would say take people seriously when they say don't do it because there are highs and lows. But yeah, you know, I, I don't know. The military ultimately helped me. I don't think I, I felt totally foreign or lost or apart from the civilian community um, because I'd already been isolated from them before I got in. You know, I, I think the one thing that 
bothered me more just having a better worldview and perspective. And I hate to be this way, but I I get really unnerved when people complain about very trivial things and there's nothing, you know, I, you know, it was at schools with people that didn't know just how good we had it. But what's funny is I was that kid, you know, I used to complain about my life and, and so just having that sense of gratitude is where I ultimately wound up after the military. It was like, it's okay. You don't know what you know, or you don't know what you don't know. So there's no reason to fault folks for that, I suppose. Um, but I know what I know. And so I can be grateful for what I have and have been through. So, I mean, thank you for sharing about like your struggle with addiction, because I think it's so important to talk about like the military gave you structure, but you still had like more work to do and that and congratulations on six years sober. That's like amazing. Such an accomplishment. I mean, that's so amazing and life changing. And I mean, yeah. So thank you so much for sharing about your experience, how giving back, you know, helped change. I mean, giving back, seeing how bad things could get, how that helped with your journey of healing. Thank you for all of this. Um, I I appreciate it. Just what you're doing, like sharing all these stories, I think is really beautiful and important thing. So we learned a lot about your experience in the military. And I always like to end each podcast interview by asking, what advice would you give to a young woman who's considering joining the military? I have two, two pieces of advice. One is that when you're deciding what you want to do in the military, or if you want to enlist in the military, slow down. Just slow down if you can. Read Amanda's book, A Girl's Guide to Military Service. (laughs) I really mean that too. If I had had that book, it would have been a different experience for me, I believe. Uh, And also just um, second piece of advice is just that a healthy dose of confidence has never done a woman wrong. It's okay to be a little confident and that and being able to use your voice and speak up and say the things you need to say to get what you want in the military and in your life is just a really important thing. That's great advice. I really like it, especially the self-confidence piece, because I think we started there and I love that we ended there and, you know, kind of wrapped it all together and talking about how important it is to self-advocate and to slow down and take your time, you know, read books, read, go on the internet, do research. Don't just believe everything your recruiter tells you because they, they are working for the government. They are not working for you. And so you are your best advocate. So advocate for yourself. Thank you so much for your time and for being a guest on the show. I'm, I'm really glad we got to do this interview. Thank you. Thank you for everything you're doing. Thanks so much for listening to this week's interview. I'm really thankful that you took the time to listen to this episode. And I wanted to tell you about two resources that may help you in your journey of military service. And so the first is my new book, A Girl's Guide to Military Service, which is available at the link in the show notes on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. You can go check it out. It's A Girl's Guide to Military Service. It's meant to help you answer all your questions about military life and give you a firm foundation for the start of your career. And if you're looking for mentorship or want to be a mentor, please check out the Women of the Military Mentorship Program, which is also linked to in the show notes. You can sign up to be a mentee or a mentor. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week.